if you missed last week's message for any reason and haven't listened to it yet, I really encourage you to do so just so you can get the, uh, the whole picture of this book. Even though it's short, um, there's a lot here. And we talked a lot last week about the concept of a bond servant and uh, Philemon's character and how that influenced other people. But um, if you were here, you remember that um, the recipient of the letter is a man named Philemon. And Philemon lived in Colossae, which we know was the town that Paul eventually set up a church in and wrote the book of Colossians. Uh, but he had been led to the Lord by uh, Apostle Paul at some point. And Paul is writing this letter from Rome. Uh, he's under house arrest at this point, And he writes to Philemon, had run away uh, from Philemon at some point. He had abandoned his post, left home, and gone thousand miles away to Rome uh, to find Paul. Now, there's a, there's a school of thought here, and it's kind of a minority, that Onesimus didn't really run away. That he actually had intentionally uh, gone to Rome to find Paul um, because under the law, there was a third-party rule that if you had an grievance with your master, there was a, a problem between slave and master, that the slave could find a third-party person that they trusted who could intercede and mediate for them. So there is a school of thought that he didn't really run away, that he had gone to Rome to seek Paul as that intermediary. Now, that's an interesting concept, and there's probably some merit to it, but really there are a couple weaknesses with it. Uh, one is that Paul hadn't yet been in Colossae, so we don't really know how he would have met Onesimus, let alone build enough of a friendship that if Onesimus left Philemon, that he would go all the way to Rome for Paul's help. Because at the point when Onesimus leaves, he's not a believer. So his affinity toward Paul would probably not have been real strong because Paul was a believer of believers, right? He, he was outspoken. So it would have been uh, probably not a theory that would hold a lot of water that he would go find Paul. Second reason for this um, is that we don't find any evidence in the text that there was a dispute that Paul was mediating. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't mention it. Um, and he would have likely used that as an opportunity to teach and to talk about how to deal with conflict uh, among believers. And the third reason is uh, that Paul's appeal in this study, and this is where we're headed with our, with our study this morning, Paul's appeal is a personal and spiritual favor. And that favor is driven by mercy uh, because it is clear, I believe from the text, that Onesimus had offended Philemon, that he had left there, that he had either by choice, knowing friends in Rome, or just to get as far away as possible from Colossae, had gone to Rome. He had somehow met Paul. Paul had uh, ministered to him, led him to Christ, discipled him, and they had kind of served together. So we're going to go from that foundation that Philemon uh, was upset because Onesimus left. Onesimus found Paul. Paul led him to Christ. And now Paul writes back to his friend Philemon to make this appeal. Okay, let's look at it. Verse 8 of Philemon. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, who I have begotten in my imprisonment, 
who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in prison, that is, sending my very heart, whom I've wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If you then regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I'll repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well, because he had led Philemon to Christ. Yes, brother, verse 20, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I'll be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As is Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, in verses 1 to 7, we saw last week that Paul had expressed appreciation to Philemon for his love and his faith. That's what he was known for. And that he had, uh, and this is in verse 7, he had continually refreshed other people. And we talked about at the end of the study that, that we have a ministry to refresh, to encourage, to exhort, to build up each other in Christ. And that was a, a, a hallmark of Philemon's life. Now, Paul had done the same thing for thousands of people, setting up churches, leading people to Christ, discipling, ministering, caring for people, writing letters to the churches. Paul knows what he's talking about here when he says you need to continue to refresh the other believers. But Paul's influence, Paul's significance in the early church was, if we want to speak in terms of hierarchy, was far greater than Philemon's. Because Paul had had a specific salvation experience on the road to Damascus when Jesus himself confronts Paul about what he's doing in persecuting believers and, and converts Paul right there on the road. And then Paul got a specific calling, a special calling, to be the minister to the Gentiles. So in terms of prominence, if we want to speak that way, and we never do in church, but in terms of prominence, in terms of power, in terms of authority, Paul has all of it. Now he alludes to that, if you look back at verse 8, because he's been given this authority by Jesus himself. So based on his maturity and based on his position, he really could, if you want to get down to, to the nitty-gritty, he really could order Philemon to do this. He could order Philemon, hey, release him. I'm the gospel minister to the Gentiles. God himself chose me. God himself called me. And, and not to throw my weight around here, but I'm going to throw my weight around here. You need to do what I'm saying. He could have pushed the issue. And he could have pressured Philemon to do exactly what he believed was best. Now, that raised a question for me as I studied. How do we use authority when we have it? When you and I have authority, and I'm going to list a couple ways in a minute. When we have authority, how do we use it? Now, men, you and I have biblical authority to be the spiritual leaders of our homes. 
We have the biblical authority, and it's not always a fun job, and a lot of us shy away from it, to, to sanctify our wives, that's what God tells us to do, to be a godly example to our kids. Now, do we do that? Do we lead with humility and with holiness, or are we compromised spiritually, and we're kind of throwing our weight around and exerting our will to try to make up for that? Now, ladies, you have the biblical authority to be the primary instructor and trainer for your kids. You have the biblical authority to strengthen and encourage your husband. So are you doing that? Are you doing that with godliness and with sacrifice? Or is there an internal resentment? Is, is there kind of a, a latent hostility? Is that a battle you're, you're fighting because maybe your husband's not doing that? Or maybe you just don't want that role. Parents, we have the biblical authority to teach our kids, to teach them first and primary to love and know Jesus Christ and his word and to prepare them and to give them a biblical worldview. Are we doing that? Every one of us that's a believer at work in our neighborhoods, we have a biblical authority from Jesus to love him without any shame, to exemplify him, to talk openly about him, and to lead others toward him. So are we doing that with humility and gratitude and passion, or are we doing it with hesitation and grumbling and passiveness? In our church, we have the biblical authority to build each other up. We have the biblical authority to use our gifts for the Lord. So are we doing that? Are we serving faithfully with steadfastness and selflessness and zeal? Or are we, for some reason, holding back in whatever way? I've told our leaders before, and I've said it from this pulpit before, that my number one qualification for anyone who serves in this church is that they love the Lord. That's the first thing, right? But the second qualification that I have is humility. Because if you are not humble, if you are not sacrificial, if you're not giving to others, how can we say, well, I love the Lord? Because what did the Lord do? He sacrificed. He gave to us. So there are people that have been here this week. They mowed the lawn without being asked. They came and planted the flower beds and put out little flags for Memorial Day without being asked. They took care of it. They showed up early in the morning. Why? Because they're committed to service and they're humble. They're not, they're not drawing attention to themselves walking around this morning. Hey, look, did you see the flowers? Yeah, I planted those. I've worked in ministry with people like that. Did you see what I did? Did you see what, hey, did you see, did you see how many hours I served? Did, did you see what I, listen, that's not, that's not the mark of a leader. That's not the mark of a servant. I am so grateful that our leaders, and you saw them this morning, Adam and Jamie and Tony, who's not here, he's working, and Jamie, these, these are godly men. They are marked by holiness, and they are marked by humility, and that's true of our ministry leaders, it's true of our worship leaders, it's true of our teachers who serve so faithfully. Now, I'm not here to brag this morning, because that would be the opposite of what I'm saying, right? I'm saying it because I want us to understand that that is a quality that is needed. When we have authority, we have to use it with humility, and that'll only happen when we love the Lord with all our heart. And then we show love for each other. So this is our first. I'm going to give you a couple spiritual principles this morning to write down. This is our first spiritual principle that Paul is teaching us here in Philemon. The first principle is authority is most powerful 
Authority is most powerful when it's compelled by love. Authority is most powerful when it's compelled by love. Notice in verses 8 and 9 that Paul doesn't assert his authority, even though he could. Instead, he appeals through love and because of love, and that's a much better approach. Not only is it, a, it, is it a kinder situation, not only does it make the atmosphere more pleasant, but it's also far easier to respond to somebody who is sincere and has your interest in mind if they're trying to compel you to do something you don't want to do. Somebody tries to force you to do something, how do you respond? Yeah, not on your life. Right? We're all, how many are stubborn like me? Don't like to be told what to do. Come on, everybody raise your hands. Don't, well, I don't know. Yeah, you are, trust me. Maybe not as stubborn as me, but it's there. So somebody tells you what to do. No, I don't want to do that. Speed limits? I don't know. I, I don't feel like going 35 on Highway 31 because it's too slow. How many think it should be 55? Yep, right? No, I don't want to eat right. I don't want to exercise. I don't want to do this. Don't tell me what to do. Don't make me feel guilty, right? That's, that's a feeling that we have. But when you know somebody's telling you that because they love you and because they have your best interests in mind and they're trying to help you become the person that God created you to be, that's different. Now, a good example of this is parenting. Our goal is not as parents... Lord, forgive me, I've done this too many times. Our goal is not to be proven right. Our goal is not to demand that we get our way because we're the parents and you're the kids and I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it, right? Our goal is to teach them to do what is wise and what honors the Lord. That is what will keep their hearts and minds pure. That's what will keep their bodies protected. That's what will give them the right decision-making when they're in peer pressure. And sometimes that means you've got to set strong parameters. And sometimes it means you've got to risk disappointing them. And I know we're all about, you know, let's make sure everybody, nobody's ever hurt and, and everybody's self-esteem is wonderful. That, that's good, but be parents too. Because I have a strong self-esteem because my parents gave me discipline. Not because they gave me everything I wanted. Because that would have made me spoiled. And I have a propensity to that. So we have to teach parents. We have to set parameters. We have to risk that they may get their feelings hurt. That they may not get their way. But if we communicate that we love them. And they know that by our actions. And they know that this is wisdom and perspective that they can't see in their youth. Eventually, down the road, they will come back to us and say, you know what? Your counsel was right. I didn't agree at the time. And I thought you were stupid. But, but it was right. When we're godly and we follow his word and we love the Lord and we love them, that'll make a difference. And that's what Paul says. Look back at verse 8 and 9. He says, I compel you by love. This, this is an appeal for love's sake. And then let me remind you that we're prisoners in Christ. We talked about that last week, so I won't belabor it. But not only is he in jail, but he's saying we're bondservants in Christ. We're people whose lives have been freed because we joyfully surrendered to the Lord. So, so let me tell you here, Philemon, my brother, listen, for love's sake, you need to do this. This is something that has to happen. 
because you trusted Christ under my ministry. And then Onesimus came to me, and he trusted Christ too. And the fact that he's now a prisoner seeking some forgiveness and freedom, that's all magnified by what's happened to all of us. Notice what Paul says here. He says, verse 11, before he was useless to you. Now, that's not a slam on Onesimus' character. Oh, that's a hard sentence. On Onesimus' character. Everybody say that five times fast, right? Onesimus says this. It's not a slam on his character. He's not, he's not being critical and rude. He says, I believe this is a very profound statement. Listen, before he wasn't like-minded. He didn't get it spiritually or practically because not only was he not a fellow believer but he wasn't in line with you his values were different you know who we are spiritually goes hand in hand with how we live practically think about that sentence for a second who we are spiritually goes hand in hand with how we live practically if you're in love with the lord and you're obeying his word, and you're walking by his spirit, there is no question that it will impact how you think, how you act, how you talk. Every decision will be guided by your heart for the Lord. But if you're double-minded, if you're trying to somehow uh, just balance some level of spirituality with, with a flip side of compromised living, the, the impact is going to be significant because instead of serving the Lord faithfully, you're going to kind of be unpredictable and unstable because the Bible says a double-minded man is what? Unstable in all their ways. So we're trying to do the little spiritual dance. I, I'm, I'm spiritual over here, but I'm living for myself over here, and, and I'll try to balance it and make sure I'm saying the right things around the right people and, and doing what I want around the other people. No, that doesn't work. That makes you unstable. And, of course, if you're carnal and you're living for yourself, instead of living for the Lord, it's going to be obvious. It's going to be very little grace, very little kindness, very little love, very little gentleness. My dad used to say, theology drives practice. And that doesn't just apply to educated convictions. It also applies to your everyday attitude and actions. What you believe, how you live, who you trust in, that will dictate action. That's why Paul says, look back at verse 11, he used to be useless, but now he's useful to you and to me. Think about how different the relationship was now between Philemon and Onesimus, if Philemon would forgive him and accept him, now they'd be like-minded. Now they'd speak the same language. Now they'd be driven by the same convictions and the same values. Now they would be aligned in terms of their understanding of the Lord and his grace and his mercy, and they'd be living by the same spirit. And any uh, animosity and resentment and, and, and frustration over the abandonment, that, that would gradually go down and down and down and down until it was no longer an issue. Why? Because at this point, they're both bond servants in Christ. And this is the second principle I want to give you this morning, and that's that spiritual transformation changes every aspect of our lives. Spiritual transformation changes every aspect of our lives. It changes our perspective. It changes our relationship. It changes everything. So what had been a source of bitterness and disagreement now was going to be turned around just because Onesimus had trusted in Christ. And now him and Philemon were on the same page. So the playing field dramatically changes. 
No longer is there, is there a problem here because their faith and conviction is the same. And when our hearts are transformed, they're aligned. I feel affinity to my brother Bill, not just because he's a friend and he's a nice guy and he's having surgery on Tuesday. I feel affinity because he's my brother in Christ and we share the same conviction and the same love for the Lord and the same burden for souls. And when that happens, it changes everything. Everything. When we're faithfully walking with the Lord, there's a natural affinity to fellow believers. There's a natural draw. You can, you can almost spot people in a crowd, right? Or when you're talking to somebody, you kind of immediately know, you're a believer, aren't you? Like, you're, you're just different. We were down, uh, my mom's in town this weekend, and we were down at the, at the uh, Harbor uh, Fresh Market down in Kenosha yesterday for a little bit. And we were walking, we, we got some fudge because that's really yummy, right? Just sugar, like, I was like, okay, I need some of that. So bought a little bit of fudge. I'm like all happy now. Ooh, got a bite of fudge. And walking across the street, and I see this guy every time. He's out there in the middle of the street with a sign that says Jesus saves, just right in the middle where the trolley goes through. And as we were walking past him, my mom just kind of said, thank you for what you're doing. Didn't, didn't engage long conversation, just, just walked by and said, thank you for what you're doing. And you could, I, I could visibly perceive out of the corner of my eye that he kind of went, oh, good, somebody else understands me. Somebody else is aligned with me in terms of my conviction. Just took a few seconds. But there was a bond there, right? You're standing before a crowd and saying, Jesus saves. Good for you. Like, praise the Lord. We'll encourage you, lift you up, exhort you, edify you. Good job. Thanks. Appreciate that. That's all it was. Maybe five, six seconds. Sometimes that'll turn into a long conversation. Because you can just sense the spirit in somebody else. And that aligns us together. Paul writes in Colossians, our hearts are encouraged being knit together in love whom gives us uh, the full assurance of understanding the true knowledge of Christ. So, so Paul's letter here, look back at the text. This is not a, a legal issue. This is not even really a practical issue. It's a spiritual issue. His request would have had no teeth if Onesimus had not trusted Christ. But now that he's turned his heart over to Christ, Paul writes a letter to the family, right? This is not just, well, to the church and class. No, this is, hey, brother. Hey, hey, we got, we got a family issue here. Here's another brother who's been adopted by Christ. Now the relationship's changed. I know he hurt you in the past, and I know he left his post, and he was wrong. I, I, I get all that, but now you got to see him differently because he's part of the family. And Paul says, look at verse 12 and 13, he says, he's blessed me, he's ministered to me. In fact, it's kind of hard to send him back to you instead of just keeping him here in Rome because he's really blessed me. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting little between the lines. Philemon didn't know he was there. There were no Instagram posts of Paul and Onesimus hanging out in front of the Colosseum meeting gelato, right? Hey, look, we're in Rome together. It's awesome. Selfie time. No, there's none of that. So we have no idea 1,200 miles away if Philemon even knew. And really at this point, from a practical standpoint, Paul doesn't have to tell him, especially because he's not sure how Philemon's going to react. But Paul knew what was right, and we should always do what is right, even though there's a personal expense to it. 
You know, when we cut the corners of compromise, it eventually leads to a greater pattern of moral negotiation and conciliation. And I was very impressed, I believe, by the Spirit as I studied this. What would have happened? What would have happened if Paul had hidden from his friend the fact that Onesimus was there? And then Philemon got word of it. What if Paul hadn't told him? What if Paul hadn't written to him and he just hung out and ministered to Onesimus and discipled him and kind of said, look, it's okay. You don't have to go back. I know that guy, a great guy, but let's not take the chance, right? Let, let's, let's not risk that. Let's not send you back. You just hang here with me. The Lord's led you to me. Now we start to spiritualize it, right? The Lord's led you to me and it's going to be great and you just stay here. What if that happened and word gets back to Philemon, hey, by the way, your buddy Paul, he's hanging out with Onesimus. How much would that have, have uh, uh, weakened the confidence that Philemon had in Paul's character and in his word from then on? And, and how much would that simple act of omitting information have damaged Paul's reputation and Paul's ministry as the word spread? Oh, by the way, Paul did his friend wrong. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't own up to it. He didn't tell him. Shouldn't he have written to Philemon and said, hey, I got your slave. Hey, hey I'm, I need to send him back to you. That was wrong what he did. Well, how much would that have damaged Paul's ministry? All the years, all the reputation he had built up, all, the, all the, the gravitas that he had with all these believers all throughout Asia Minor, it would have taken one simple action that he probably could have justified to undo years of faithfulness. Think about that. That's how fine a line we walk. Listen very carefully now. That is how fine a line we walk in terms of our witness to other people. And the enemy knows that. And he makes every effort to use temptation and to use pressure and to use, and this one's one we don't talk about a lot, to use criticism of other people to weaken us into little by little by little, we give in, and we start to get great damage because the foundation that we've worked so hard to build about integrity and a spiritual reputation starts to crack. So this is not Paul just saying, hey, do a brother a favor. Come on, just kind of look the other way. It's all right. It's no big deal. Come on, let's just, let's get past this. This is an issue of spiritual integrity. This is an issue of character. This is an issue of witness. And that's our third principle. The third principle is integrity never takes a break. Integrity never takes a break. Paul's character and ministry is the whole foundation for him writing this letter and making this appeal. And as I was studying this, I, I wrote in my notes initially, Paul's laying the groundwork for his appeal. And, and, and instantly as I wrote that, the Holy Spirit said, nope, that's wrong. Because the inference of writing that in my notes was that Paul is trying some kind of clever manipulation through, through overstating compliments and through subtle guilt to, to kind of say, hey, let me lay kind of the groundwork and let me set up the case so that you'll go my way. Paul doesn't do that because how many know that that never works effectively? No, Paul's not trying to manage this. 
This is not some kind of relational exploitation. Well, let me, let me play the game and kind of get you to do my, my, my way. This is way more pure. He doesn't have to work Philemon because they believe the same thing. Because they're brothers in Christ. Because they're laboring together. So he writes to him and he says, listen, let me speak to your heart. Look at verse 14. He writes him with humility and he writes him with honesty, but he writes him with hope. I'm going to send him back. Onesimus is coming back to you and and I'm doing that not to try to force you to act. Verses 13 and 14. I'm not trying to get my way. I have the belief that of your own free will, you will restore this brother in Christ. And, and while we could talk legality and while we could argue theology, I just want to appeal to your heart. When we appeal to the heart, that prevents legalism from taking root. So Paul writes, let me just, you're my brother. He's our brother. We're brothers together. We're one in Christ. Let me just, let me just write to you. Let me just appeal to you. And then he goes to verses 15 and 16 where he really goes for the ask. He says, listen, I want you to accept him back forever. But the rules have changed. Let me speak to your heart, Philemon. I I don't want you to restore him as a slave. He's more than a slave. He's more than a slave. He's a brother in Christ. Now, by law, Philemon had every reason and every right to make him a slave again. In fact, this was such a serious offense that he was allowed to legally burn, brand, or kill Onesimus. So Paul's taking a risk. I'm going to send you back. Well, I don't want to go, brother. No, you got to go back. We've got to make this right. And I'm going to write to my brother in Christ and your brother in Christ. And I'm going to appeal to him. And we're going to let the Lord, we're going to trust the Lord for this. So Philemon, listen now. We know the Lord. We love the Lord. We're bond servants for Christ. All of us are servants. Now, listen, listen. Sacrifice your hurt. Let the offense go. Forgive him because that's what God did for us. And don't restore him as a slave. Restore him as a brother. Right now, I want you to think of somebody that has really hurt you in the past. Somebody that's really offended you. It may not take a half a second to think of that name. It's not pleasant, right? You, you came here Memorial Day. It's a beautiful day. I don't want to talk about my, I don't want to talk about the hurt. I want you to think about that hurt for a minute. When that person first hurt you, how did you react? And then in the years and mo- months and years that have gone by since, how have you dealt with it? And then when I asked you to think of that name, and that name popped right up, oh yeah, that person How do you feel about them right now? Now, if words like, and this is human, if words like angry, resentful, bitter, not over it, if those those words are in your mind, you haven't forgiven that person for the offense. You say, well, they've never come to me and apologized. And really, true forgiveness can't take place until there's repentance on the offending person's part. But what did God do? God put his grace out there. He put his mercy out there, knowing that it would be rejected by 
billions of people. But he still put it out there and said, whenever you want to repent, I'll forgive you instantly. Now, for that person whose name is seared in your brain for the rest of your life, are you ready with grace? If they called you this afternoon and said, brother, sister, I, I, I've hurt you. I had somebody call me once after 17 years and say, I hurt you. I offended you. I'm so sorry. Now, if I hadn't released that, and I'm not bragging, I'm just saying, if I hadn't learned that I've got to release that in order to be content, in order to trust the Lord, if I hadn't already let go of that hurt, I would have reacted bitterly. I would have said what I really thought about them. But because God is gracious and because we know that God's mercy is so powerful, when that person called, it was wonderful. It was a breath of fresh air, right? Because now it could be released forever. And it was easy to say, I forgive you. It's fine. It's in the past. We're good. And this is a friend of mine, like good friend of mine. And I haven't thought about it since, right? When we hold on to that, it damages us. Hey, say, well, you don't know what's happened to me. Listen, you guys know some of the things that have happened to me in life. I've been open about that. I understand. I know what it's like to be hurt. I know what it's like to be stabbed in the back. I know what it's like to have other relationships damaged because of what something did. I know what it's like to have people work against you. I get it. But let me tell you, there is power and freedom in forgiveness. And we have to be willing to be ready to forgive. And that's what Paul exemplifies. That's the fourth spiritual principle here in verse 20, is that forgiveness refreshes everyone involved. Please, if you write nothing else down, write that down. Forgiveness refreshes everyone involved. He appeals to Philemon, look at it, refresh my heart in Christ. So not only have you refreshed others, verse 7, Philemon, not only are you going to refresh Onesimus because you're going to accept him not as a slave, you're going to accept him as a brother, but in doing that, you're going to refresh me. You remember that word from last week? It's that word, anapowo. It means to let somebody else stop from labor in order to recover and collect their strength. In other words, for Onesimus, that means he's able to go back and to stop laboring and stop feeling the guilt of his actions and stop having this tension because he messed up because he wasn't saved and he did the carnal, natural thing to do. It frees him even from his legal obligation because Philemon is going to accept him as a brother. So how much is that anapowo to Onesimus to be able to walk back and be refreshed? And for Paul, he says, look, if you'll do this, it'll refresh me. Well, how? Well, it'll freedom, free him from the burden of worrying about his brother. What's going to happen? I don't know. I'm nervous about sending you back, but we're going to trust the Lord. See, when we, when we love each other and we forgive each other and we sacrifice for each other, it has a powerful, cumulative effect of relieving physical and emotional stress. If you have stress in your marriage this morning, if you have stress with your kids, if there's tension, if there's a dynamic there that, that is hostile and raw and, and struggling, it is because, I promise you, it's because somebody hasn't forgiven somebody. I promise you. 
It's because there's something somebody's holding on to that they will not let go. There hasn't been repentance. There hasn't been grace extended. And it's just a struggle of pride. That's why, let's finish. Look at it. Paul stands in the gap for Onesimus. And notice how powerful it is to take on somebody else's burden and to help them bear the strain of what they're going through. Paul not only appeals for Onesimus, but he says, identify him with me. Look, if we're partners in ministry, if we're aligned together in Christ, when you see him, I want you to see me. Don't see the slave that left you. Don't see the guy who left you in a lurch. Don't see the one who offended you, who you've been struggling with, who you're angry at, who you've been bitter at. Don't see him. You see me. And listen, if he's done any wrong, if there's any offense, if there's any cost to you, charge it to me. Charge it to me. Charge it to my account. I'll obey. I'll repay it. And, and by the way, don't want don't to mention this, but I'm going to mention it anyway. I led you to Christ. You owe me. I talked to you. I showed you the love of God. Now, some of us are old enough to remember when calls cost 30 cents a minute for long distance. You remember those days? Good times. And sometimes, way back when in the dark ages, like 20 years ago, way back then, you remember when a family or friend would call and they would call collect? Or they'd call person to person. Anybody remember? How many remember that? Show me your hand. Oh, yeah, like all of you. And when the operator came on, and everybody under 20 is going, what's an operator? Like, I don't know what that is. When the operator came on, they would say, so-and-so is calling. What did they say? Do you accept the charges? What did that mean? It meant covering the cost for them. Now, last thought. We're going to pray. Look at it. He says, there are times we have to do this for each other. We have to bear the cost, not only because it's right, but because it encourages them and it refreshes them and us. And because the Holy Spirit includes this in the 66 books, I believe we can conclude that Paul's appeal was accepted, that Philemon restored Onesimus not as a slave, but as a brother, and that there was a new relationship and a new ministry. Now, here's the, here's the final question. Who do you need to do that for today? Who do you need to step in and intervene Maybe it's to be a mediator. Maybe you see conflict. Maybe it's people in your family and they've just been at odds. You're not looking forward to the next holiday because you're going to get together and it's going to be a Donnybrook. Maybe you need to step in and say, look, let's deal with this. I'm tired of it. It's messing up every gathering. Every time we get together, there's yelling and slam doors. I'm tired of it. Let, let's deal with this. Speaking words of truth, speaking words of wisdom to them. Or, more difficult, who do you need to repent to? Who do you need to go to and say, I've offended you? Like that guy who called me after 17 years. I've offended you. Paul, I'm so sorry. Brother, it's okay. We're way past that at this point. But thank you. I'll never forget that phone call. Because it meant so much that they were willing to say, I'm sorry. We don't hear I'm sorry a lot in our culture, do you? I'm sorry. Two of the most powerful words in the English language. Probably the most powerful, I love you. Second most powerful is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I did that. I'm sorry. Please forgive me.
And then, who do you need to forgive? And you say, well, maybe they haven't, they haven't repented. They haven't done what that guy did. That's fine. Extend grace. Be ready. Because at some point, they may come up to you and say, I repent. I'm sorry. And, and you don't want to be caught off guard like, what do I do now? You want to say, I forgive you because Christ forgave me. Praise the Lord. Amen. I forgive you. I'm, I accept your apology. And you know what? If I've done anything to offend you, I'm sorry. Now we're, come on, we're kindred. We're knit together. We're brother, sister, in Christ. Praise the Lord. God is so gracious, isn't he? Use that as a testimony. So who do you need to intercede? Who do you need to repent to? Who do you need to forgive? Paul writes this letter and he says, Brother, everything's changed. We're one in Christ. Let's make this right. God will help us as we do that. Let's pray together.